0: Hello, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. This podcast is taken from a webinar which was held on the 8th of July entitled Economic Restart, Is Now a Good Time to Launch an Irish Fund? So as the lifting of restrictions across many countries gathers pace, this podcast takes a forward look to potential economic developments over the second half of 2021, while posing the question if now is a good time to launch an Irish domiciled fund. The discussion will briefly cover the options and features available to asset managers from both a usage and alternative perspective, including the new ILP structure and the ease of accessing a global investor base using an Irish domiciled fund structure. So the moderator is Maria Ging, who's a director with BlackRock in Dublin. And we have Robert Rosenberg, who's a partner and CFO with Heptagon Capital, and James Pomeroy, global economist with HSBC. I hope you enjoy this and check back soon for more great content.
1: Good afternoon everyone and welcome to this Irish Funds webinar on Economic Restart is now a good time to launch an Irish Fund. My name is Maria Ging and I'm a director in Blackrocks Irish Operations and I have the privilege of being the current Vice Chair of Irish Funds Council. I'm very excited about today's event as we have some really interesting panellists for you. I'd like to welcome James Pomeroy, Global Economist from HSBC. James joined HSBC's economics team in 2013 and much of his work focuses on longer-term trends and themes and the impact that they have on the economy and policy decisions today, including work focusing on demographic data, consumer trends, urbanization and technology adoption. I'd also like to welcome Robert Rosenberg, Partner and CFO at Hepticon Capital. In his role, Robert is responsible for all non-investment functions, including finance, operations, IT, legal and compliance, in addition to the global distribution of Heptagon's investment products. Robert is also a board member on the firm's corporate entities and investment funds. Thank you both for joining us today. James, Robert and I would love this session to be interactive, so please do use the chat function to ask questions during the event, please note that this event will be recorded. So to kick us off, James, the title of this webinar is Economic Restart. Is now a good time to launch an Irish fund? But we haven't experienced an economic restart before. So what is it? And what do you expect this restart to look like in terms of economic growth, inflation and interest rates?
2: Well, it's a good question. Um, We clearly haven't had anything like this ever happen before. And I think a lot of economists all over the world are struggling to work out what their models tell you in a situation like this. There's no historical precedent you could try and attach to this and that's why I think everyone is trying to learn as much as they can from every new piece of data and information that comes our way. And I think that what I'm doing at the moment is spending a lot of time looking at the data in countries who have reopened um, and, and provide us with pretty good timely data. The best example for me um, in the past of a few months has been the state of Victoria um, in Australia. That's a slightly niche set of data to be looking at, you know, one Australian state and sort of saying what happens in the rest of the world. But you know, people all over the world are relatively similar in many ways, you know, in terms of their mentality towards going back out and doing things when you've come out of lockdown. And what happened in the state of Victoria is you saw in the second. Well, the final quarter of last year, you saw this real um, pickup in spending back out at cafes and restaurants as soon as people were allowed. So as soon as restrictions came off, you saw a 60% jump in spending in those areas and those spending levels were back above pre-pandemic levels by February. Then we've got what's happening in the US at the moment where many states have taken off restrictions and you're seeing this snap back there too. You're seeing that suddenly the second people can do things, they're going to go and do it. And I think that's a really important point that I think a lot of um, economic modelling and forecasters really misunderstood at the beginning of the year how quickly activity bounces back. It's almost like the economy has been a coiled spring and we've, un- we've sort of unleashed it um, by taking off these restrictions. And that's possible because households are in very good shape now across the world a lot of um, particularly high-income households have saved a lot of money during the past years there's a lot of money to be put to work but also government support either in the U.S. in terms of um, stimulus checks or elsewhere in Europe or in, in other parts of the developed world in particular um, the, the sort of furlough schemes, short-time work schemes have stopped people's um, collapse in incomes being as bad as it otherwise could have been so what you're seeing is this really hard fast rebound Um, in in global growth, um, particularly in those economies who are doing a good job in terms of vaccinations, getting the virus under control and reopening, then that clearly is leading to some inflationary pressures because, What you've ended up seeing is in some parts of the economy, just a huge amount of demand for certain things. And this is running up against a period where there's also supply shortages, many things all over the world. It's certain commodities, certain products, there's difficulty shipping things because of what happened in the Suez Canal, um, or just a general shortage of containers all over the world. There's disruption of factories and ports in Asia because of outbreaks of COVID cases. So supply of a lot of goods has been heavily reduced but also as economies reopen certain things are in really really high demand um so i don't know about anyone who's who's watching this but if you tried to buy furniture um in the past couple of months it's tricky it's really expensive and there's not much of it particularly garden furniture as everyone wants to go and sit outside as the summer comes around in the northern hemisphere but then the other side of it is used cars um, and this is a big part of the inflation story in the us where people want to go back out and they want to do things they obviously don't want to get on a crowded bus or train or or, or whatever so people want used private transportation. Used car prices in the US are up about 30% um, compared to pre-pandemic. Car rental prices are up 70% um, compared to pre-pandemic period. And that's just because there's a shortage of cars and an oversized amount of demand for them. That pumps up prices much, much more quickly than I think anyone could have imagined. And we're going to see those little pockets all over the world. There's different places reopen. There's gonna be little areas where that supply-demand imbalance hangs around. And that means that then you've got to think, Should you respond to that? If you suddenly, if you're the Fed or you're the ECB or the Bank of England, you're seeing these things happen. If you suddenly think, well, if I raised interest rates by 25 basis points, is that going to suddenly mean that no one wants to buy a new garden table? It makes no difference whatsoever. And I think there's an element of that sort of transitory is the word that everyone's using that makes sense you can't tackle this sort of inflation and with rate rises you've almost just got to let it play out and so what we're then expecting is inflation to stay high this year but really drop off next year as these effects unwind and that's left us with this really tricky situation in terms of central banks some across the world are, are nervous and they're panicking a little bit about these high inflation numbers this strong growth number and we 're starting to see a big um a, a growing number of emerging market central banks and um, start to raise rates of so Brazil mexico russia Hungary Czech Republic these guys all raising rates. the norges Bank in norway they 're likely to raise rates in a couple months' time, but across the rest of the developed world, central banks seem pretty comfortable playing it very, very safe. You know, a lot of central banks burnt by raising rates. Too early after the financial crisis in 2011, so including the ECB and that, um, seemed very reluctant to, to go early. And so you've got a, an odd world where we've got well above target inflation for pretty much every economy out there. We've got really strong growth in most parts of the world, particularly the developed world. Yeah, central banks aren't going to do anything, um, at least through um 2021 and probably at least the first half of 2022 then we may see some of the smaller developed market central banks start to raise rates but the Fed we don't think will be until the second half of 2023 and the ECB of course not doing anything anywhere in our forecast horizon.
1: um i'm really struck by that vivid vivid image of the tightly coiled spring um and you mentioned there about interest rates and i'm sure lots of people with their savings still in deposit accounts would love to see any movement in interest rates but i know there's been some really interesting trends in savings during lockdown so would you like to step us through some of those
2: yeah it's been quite incredible how much money households have now got in their pockets and it's obviously disproportionately in the pockets of high income households. So people whose spending is typically on recreation, leisure, the sort of things that have been closed, they've generally kept their jobs. Now, a lot of high income jobs, professional services jobs haven't been affected by lockdowns at all. And so what you've ended up seeing is this enormous sort of pile of cash that's appeared um, in, in the world. And if you take U.S. data where we get really good monthly data on consumer savings, that savings pile additional savings pile is now closing in on about 20 percent of a normal year's spending now that's a huge amount of money that's in additional savings and then you start to think well actually what happens if some of (laughs) that gets spent doesn't need to be all of it It could just be a small share of it and you're talking about an enormous boom um, in consumer spending we don't get the same amount of data everywhere in the world but what we do get is um bits we can sort of piece together. You can get an estimate, it's probably around eight to 12% of GDP um, in different parts of the world and um, where people are, have managed to save. Now, then there's a question of how quickly do you run that down? And it's quite likely that you see consumers being a little bit more cautious in the post-pandemic period about that stock of savings. Quite rightly so. You don't know what's gonna happen in the next sort of six, 12 months, of course, in terms of lockdowns, in terms of the virus. And we're gonna see a little bit more caution. Maybe households forever will be a little bit more cautious about savings. Savings rates will sit um, a little higher. Um, But then you start to think, well, what else can you do with the money? Um, And the one area of the economy that's been a huge winner um, from this sort of savings trend um, and the way that income sort of, of the, the income groups who have been able to say and what's happened with interest rates is property. And um, we're seeing this sort of odd story all over the world where you know, typically you think in a big economic crisis, house prices fall quite dramatically. It's one of the sort of classic high beta um, assets to the economy. Yet house prices, pretty much anywhere where you can get data, up about 10 to 12% year on year. Some parts of the world up about 15, 16, 18 In New Zealand, up 30% year on year. Um, and that sort of mix of what people are deciding to do with their money creates these sort of where does it people are desperately trying to think where does it go And i think property has been one of those places that's seen a, a lot of money go into it but going forwards they're very low interest rates households keeping rate keeping uh, a lot of money in reserve a lot of savings that's going to have to go somewhere and and it wouldn't be surprising at all if we started to see people willing to take a little bit more risk with some of those savings because you've got money in the bank you're getting zero percent or or worse um, in some places in terms of your return. And it wouldn't be surprising at all if we had to see people starting to take just a little bit more risk with some of that money.
1: And Robert, maybe just to bring you in, I know some savers have been looking at investing in usage funds instead of traditional deposit accounts. Can you outline why Heptagon Capital chose Ireland for their usage and why you feel that now is a good time to launch an Irish fund?
3: Sure. Um, we started our USITs business, our fund business, over a decade ago. You know, at that time, uh, we were quite small. We actually started with a, with a PIF, so a, a different type of structure. Once the USITs brand got popular, we decided to shift in, into UCITS, and we were looking really for a jurisdiction that had four key attributes that would help us. One is a good reputation and solid legal structure. We also wanted close proximity to uh, the Heptagon's main office in the U.K., uh, English speaking was a key point for us, which might not be for every manager, but you know, as we're a UK-based company, we really want to be able to communicate well with all of our service providers and also reasonable costs. So we had to make sure the, the fund structure to run was uh, reasonable costs, but as well as all the startup costs and the ability for Heptagon to go and do this. So we started looking around and discussing with various people. And it, if, you know, once you look in the industry, it really comes down to Ireland, UK, Luxembourg, are the three main European hubs. Yes, other countries have fun businesses, but they, we didn't think they were as strong. When we compared those three, Ireland really came out the top for, for us. Uh, easy proximity to the UK, lots of flights between the countries, easy travel based on you know, English law, so Irish law is very similar to what we we're familiar with, uh, and a, you know, a crux of providers there that, that could actually help manage the business. And it really, it really turned out to uh, work well for us. You know, we, we structured it a decade ago, we've been growing ever since, uh, and Ireland as a hub has worked worked very well for us, especially on the usage front. Uh, but I know also on the alternative front, Ireland has built up uh, their infrastructure there, which we could we could touch on a little bit later when we, we get to those questions. And in, in terms of timing, you mentioned is it a good time to launch funds? Uh, I think it's a very good time to launch funds, um, mainly because you know, as James was saying earlier, money is coming into the market. There is demand, not only for usage, but for other structures and people are putting their money to work but also the complexity of raising money and running fund structures now is getting much more complicated. So having an onshore structure versus an offshore structure makes a lot of sense for, for companies, uh, for their asset raising, their distribution, client servicing. Uh, clients in Europe particular are familiar with, with UCITS uh, and Ireland offers the ability to, to do all these things. Uh, but I would reiterate the complexity of distribution is, is a key one. So having that onshore fund is going to make it easier for any manager to go out and raise money kind of outside their main markets and into Europe.
1: And Robert then in practical terms how did you go about setting up your Irish funds or what advice would you give anybody listening today who's considering setting up Irish funds?
3: Sure I mean we we took a very slow approach and a very cautious approach to setting up this was quite a new business for, uh, for us when we started. The first thing we wanted to look for was uh, partners that we can trust and have for the long term. So We weren't looking for, you know, legal firms or admin or custody that would operate on a transactional basis. We really wanted to find, you know, what legal firm to start with could be our long-term advisor partner and be with us to, to you know, grow this business out. Yeah. You know, so the usual, met a few firms. Uh, we found one that was a, a bit like us, more of a boutique firm at the moment. But you really need to find a firm that matches your culture. So there's a lot of different firms out there from the very large providers to the very small, to the mid-size, but finding a firm that you trust that you can partner with for the long haul was, was a key to us. So that was the first step. Once we found the law firm that we could work with, then we was mapping out what exactly are the requirements? Because it sounds quite straightforward, but when you dig into the detail, you really need to understand, you know, how are you gonna run this fund? Are you gonna get board of directors? What service providers, what are the rules, regs, board meetings, reporting requirements? So taking the time up front to really understand all the in and outs, I think, is, is very important for somebody set, setting it up. And that'd be my, that's you know, so what we did. I think that should be my advice to anyone setting up. There is, what are you trying to achieve? You know, is this a fund of one, a small audience? Is it going to be widely distributed? And how do you like to work with your service providers? Is it a partnership type relationship for the long term? Is it you need a firm to help you get up and running, and then you're going to take on more of the of the work yourself? once you know that then you can actually you know fly in meet the various players and determine who you'd like to work with
1: brilliant thanks Robert and uh, thank you to those who have already submitted questions I see lots flying in um, but we'll keep the dialogue going a little further Um, James maybe to bring you back in there's been a lot of focus at the moment on building back better building back greener and building back fairer post-COVID so you know up to this point in the discussion we focused on usage funds and retail flows but where do you see opportunities for institutional capital to contribute to these policy initiatives
2: it's interesting isn't it I think the, the pandemic's accelerated a lot of things um, in society and the way we do things um, in, the, in our ways of working all of these things but it's clearly really tightened the focus on a lot of the environmental and social challenges that are out there within the global economy, particularly um, in Europe and and the US particularly, you can see this in the policy responses that governments have done. And what's essentially we saw last year is governments go and spend a ton of money propping up their economies, is putting money in the pockets of people who'd lost their jobs because their place of work was closed or supporting healthcare systems. And now there's this huge tilt in terms of, how can we spend money um, in the coming years to make the economy be better in so many ways make it grow quicker make it fairer make it future resistant and then that's going to mean investing in digital is going to invest in 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 green energy and these sorts of general upgrading of the economy Um, and that's going to keep coming and keep coming and i think those trends had had a sort of a strong um, tailwind before before the pandemic and it's really been accelerated by this sort of sense of purpose that governments have got to try and get uh, the economy going again, and these are the perfect ways to do it. And this already had legs because, one, you've got a huge demographic change in the global economy, which I, do, I think is permanently underestimated. That you've got a cohort of people today in their 20s and early 30s who just have a completely different outlook on life. Um, to people who are 30 or 40 years older and people who of that age group will always tell me that no no they also care about environmental issues they also care about these social issues they do but just know one as much as that younger cohort it's just so much more of a of a priority for them and so as that cohort ages into a into a stage of their life where they've got more money um, both as consumers but also as investors um, and also they can vote And that changes the outlook for a lot of this sort of building back better type stuff quite considerably and gives it legs for quite some time. So I think any investor's got to be thinking a lot more um, about ESG, not as as a fad or a trend, but as something that's got sort of a fundamental backing to it because of these underlying factors. The fact that you've got people who are going to be a bigger part of the consumer group who care about this stuff. Governments therefore have to care if they ever want to win an election and businesses have to care about it if they are going to and um, attract those customers. So I think those three angles pushes in that direction and a big um, push as a result of the pandemic accelerates it, makes it a trend that's not just something that's big now, I think it's gonna be more and more important over the next decade.
1: Yeah, completely agree. And Robert, I know you shared your experiences earlier on establishing USITS funds in Ireland, but do you think that Ireland has the right framework and ecosystem to support alternative investment funds with capital to deploy in this space? Uh,
3: Absolutely. I think Ireland has over the years built up a a great infrastructure. They have a real depth of knowledge and experience across the board in terms of the service providers. Um, I'll even give a little credit to the central bank. They have built up their capabilities and are still expanding them. Uh, we've launched a few ESG funds. I know James, you just touched on it, and actually the, the process of that went relatively smoothly. So I think you know Ireland has been keeping pace. And when it comes to the alternative side, I know they've created a new fund, a few different fund structures, particularly for the alternatives. So they have the RAEF on the you know, the retail investor alternative investment funds. I believe even on the private equity side, the real estate, there's some uh, interesting structures that they're they have in place for fund managers to start these type of products as well.
1: Excellent. And um, please, just to our audience, please keep the questions coming. I'm actually going to pause for a moment and skip into some of the questions that we've received. The first one in is for you, James. Um, will the process of weaning economies off pandemic support payments create a delay in the proposed economic restart?
2: It's a very good question and it's one i don't think anyone knows the answer to And if they if someone tells you they know the answer they're they're lying because this again is something that hasn't happened before no one has a clue what's going to happen i think you can make a very pessimistic case you can make a very optimistic case and i'll give you the one i think uh, is most, most likely um the pessimistic case is that essentially governments have kept a load of businesses going who are not viable And what's going to happen as soon as these payments stop is those businesses are going to go bust, a lot of jobs are going to disappear, and um, there's a financial stability risk as well, because you see a huge rise in the number of bankruptcies. Typically in a recession, bankruptcies rise by about 20 or 30% in an economy. During the pandemic, they've dropped by about 40%. So even if you were to get back to some sort of normality, you're talking about a huge increase in the number of firms um, going bust in 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 the coming years. Now that's clearly a huge risk, and I can I can understand why people um feel that that is a, a genuine big concern. The, the other side of it though is what happens if this policy that's been put in place has worked well and it's essentially kept businesses on ice, um so that they then can almost come out of the freezer perfectly um, into a booming economy. And there's there's some evidence that that is happening. Um if you look at Australia. Um, which is, I used my example of Victoria, but Australia is a great example more broadly. Their furlough scheme equivalent, um, basically they're finished at the end of March. Um, In May, the number of people employed in Australia rose to above pre-pandemic levels. Now, that's the sort of thing that would be a big surprise um, here here in Europe. Um, But actually, isn't that surprising? Because you've got these businesses who get taken off that support just at the right time as the economy is growing really, really strongly and there's there's demand for labour. And that's the bit that gives me hope, is there's a lot of businesses out there really wanting to employ people at the moment, which is encouraging um, in terms of the, the ability for this um when these when these supports roll off that these businesses can keep going that gives me hope and makes me think that's a slightly more um, likely outcome but of course it's going to be a case by case business by business um story where you're going to see some businesses thrive coming out of this support into this booming economy others will struggle um but i think the evidence from australia tentative so far is that actually maybe it's not the end of the world good news thanks james
1: (laughs) And Robert, a question in for you if you don't mind. So what challenges did you face in setting up funds in Ireland and how did you overcome them?
3: Yeah, our initial challenges as as we were new we didn't know a a lot of the players in Ireland. So we actually had to take our time to develop the relationships and and especially in finding board members as well because it's quite an important role and you want to find players that you're you're happy to work with over the long term. Uh, Once we got those in place and the funds are running The other challenges we came up with was when we launched new funds. So we have a fund umbrella in Ireland. We currently have 13 sub-funds. We found more frustrations and challenges where the the documentation language has been approved uh, and then you have to kind of redo it or there's changes in the rules always. So changes in the way performance fees are calculated or the way you need to document things. So there's never a kind of um, one type fits everything. Every time you have a new fund, a new product, you have to go and go through the hoops and get the product up and running and work with your providers uh, to get all the approvals in place. But in, but in general, I don't think that's any different than any other jurisdictions that you'd be working in.
1: Makes sense. Um it's great all the questions are flying in together um so another one for james so you covered you know some of the countries that are uh, restarting quicker um but we have a question in on which parts of the world are likely to be laggards in the restart
2: yeah the, the obvious answer is to say those economies who have been pretty slow off the mark in terms of vaccinations and um, which so far has been much of the emerging world through no fault of their own essentially countries who just haven't got access to vaccines and hopefully that's a that's a gap that gets closed in the coming months as, as the likes of the eu and the us and the uk um have basically hit critical and um, sort of a critical mass in terms of vaccinations that's already the case in the us and the uk where the number of vaccines available they they don't have as, enough arms essentially to put them into people um going forward so you might as well share that out with the rest of the world and improve um, vaccine supply. But the, the countries that, that concerned me, uh, I, two weeks ago, if we were doing this, I would have said I was very worried about. Um, Japan, still am, um, uh, be- because the vaccination program has been very slow. We'll have seen that with the latest announcements about the Olympics. Um, Korea, was very similar story. Um, but also Australia and New Zealand, really, really disappointing um, in terms of the, the speed of the vaccine rollouts. And it's essentially these economies that had the pandemic largely under control that then were very, very slow to vaccinate. And that means you get your economy back quite quickly, but not to um, full potential. You're back at sort of 90%. And getting that 10% is really really hard until you get those vaccinations because otherwise you risk having to keep putting restrictions in place and you can't get investment you can't get people willing to take risks because that uncertainty still hangs around but on top of that you've also got the problem with borders and I think any country opening borders is going like properly opening borders is going to be some way off still and you've also got the challenge of even if borders are open are people going to want to cross them If I was to go on holiday um, to to Spain, there's a chance that I might have to quarantine when I come home. You can have a lovely time, but it gets ruined by a two-week quarantine. Um, And and that sort of risk is going to hang around for some time. And I think that um, whilst that's in play, anywhere that's reliant on international tourism is going to be really, really struggling. And the final part of the world that we're a little concerned about at the moment is in ASEAN, uh, the likes of Malaysia, Indonesia, and we've got a really um, high number of COVID cases, restrictions coming in, the vaccines aren't there, and it was very reminiscent of sort of the same story that was playing out all over the world um, last year. So there's some good news out there, don't get me wrong, but it's heavily concentrated in Europe, the US, um, and to an extent Australia and, and co. But there's a lot of parts of the emerging world that are still having a pretty rough time of it, um, and we need to make sure that they can get vaccinated as quickly as possible.
1: Exactly, James. Um, Robert. Another question in for you. We have an audience member who would be interested to hear whether you have heard or seen much interest in the new ILP structure as a vehicle for launches.
3: Sure. I mean, it's not the Heptagon's area of expertise, but we have gotten a lot of questions from our client base uh, and also some of our business partners. There's a real interest in the, the liquid side and the alternative businesses right now, and in terms of wrapping them into funds, and the best fund structures out there now, I think Ireland is now caught up with this new one. So a lot of our you know, private equity firms that we work with are looking for onshore funds. So they want to you know, have their Caymans, their Delawares, and they are looking for European structures. And this new structure in, in Ireland will definitely benefit for that. Um, I, th- I think Ireland has grown in this area, as I mentioned earlier, in the in the whole real estate business in general and the private assets. And it looks like they want to grow their alternative fund business a lot more. So there's definitely interest from not only investors, um, but also on the the managers as well that we're seeing.
1: Brilliant, thanks Robert. And please to our audience members, please do keep your questions coming. We're trying to get through them as quickly as possible, um, but please do keep sending them through. Um, So James, again, um, we spoke about the ESG trends, but what other trends have been accelerated by the pandemic?
2: um for me it's basically anything uh digital um i i think the pandemic has acted as the uh it's almost the the dynamo moment i don't know if anyone knows the history of uh of when the dynamo was first invented and people essentially Um, just used it to replace steam engines. You had these huge factories where steam engines had to be based, you know, this technology that's much smaller and much more mobile, but was just put in the same place and nothing changed. And I I think the world had been doing this for a long, long time with a lot of the technology we have, particularly in terms of communications, the likes of Zoom or doing online events, all of these things, um, ways of working. We just hadn't adapted to the technology that was available to us. Whereas actually during the course of the pandemic, we've all suddenly woken up to go, but actually that makes a lot of sense. And I think this whole digitized economy just keeps getting pushed and pushed and pushed because it sort of opens the door to what else could be digitized. And we're going to see more of this happen with things like healthcare, of course, remote working conferences, these sorts of things. This is a this is a door that's been opened. Um, all of this is quite encouraging to me. Um and the biggest part of that is also gonna be in terms of payments. Um cash usage across the world was in decline anyway, that decline is now terminal because businesses stop accepting cash payments and then suddenly off you go. And I think that, that that's, it's just a trend that keeps accelerating, accelerating, accelerating. And I'm, I'd be very confident that cash is hardly used in most places in the world within 10 years time, um, largely um, triggered by the, the acceleration in that demise as a result of the pandemic.
1: I can imagine um and james you're very popular in the question so no rest <laughs> for the wicked you're going again um we have somebody who wants to know will we see another roaring 20s followed by a big crash in a few years similar to the
2: 1920s it's a good. i mean trying to forecast a crash in 10 years time is, is is quite difficult um economists aren't great at forecasting uh two years out let alone 10. um but the um but i think the idea of uh, a roaring 20s it has a lot of merit um because It is based off of these whole new ways of doing things that we unleash the productivity potential that's been there for a decade. We see investment come into the right places, we see new industries, we see a push on green energy, we see a push on digitization, we see new jobs get created. We see this sort of sense of, oh, we haven't done things for two years, so let's just go back out and do it. Now, I've been lucky enough to go to a couple of the games uh, at the European Championships and just the euphoria of people from just being back out in a crowd just those sorts of things people just like doing things and there's going to be an, an incentive to, oh, look at all these places i wished i'd gone on holiday i'm going <laughs> you know and i think that sort of that, that sort of psychological element to it as well as the sort of underlying economics element of these whole new businesses and things being being taken away makes quite a lot of sense if you see a crash at the end of it quite pause plausible but i think any sort of my biggest economic risk over the next 10 years isn't necessarily going to be sort of a financial markets crash, I'm, I'm not too worried about that that happening. I don't think for, as an economist entirely, uh, I wouldn't be too worried about the, the spillovers into the economy. I, I'm much more worried about some of the intergenerational inequality stuff that's building. There's at some point it has to hit ahead. Um, if you're a young person today in most developed markets, you've got no chance of buying a house and that that's something that has to change at some point. And either it's a housing crash, political change, I don't know what it is, but that has to change at some point. And maybe that's in 10 years, 15, 20, who knows, but those pressures are probably gonna be heavily involved in whatever causes the next big crash somewhere in the global economy.
1: One to watch out for, definitely. Interesting question, in and what I might do is throw it open to both of, both of you, but Robert, I'll come to you first. So a question in, and please do keep them coming. Um, will cryptocurrencies be mainstream in five years' time, or will they fall away as they are perceived as non-ESG?
3: Interesting question, and we've had many debates about this internally with clients, with business partners. Our take on it is the cryptocurrencies will probably not be mainstream but digital currencies may become mainstream. And what I mean by that is a lot of the governments are now looking at digitalizing their currencies themselves. So you, if I think James mentioned earlier, when's the last time people actually use cash versus tapping their credit cards? So the next iteration of that will be instead of tapping credit cards, you can just easily move money. So there'll be digital dollars, euros, sterling. So the, that part we believe in. The ESG angle of that I think is temporary. I think you know, we all believe there's a bubble in cryptocurrencies at the moment. Is there a place for them in the economy? Possibly, uh, but I think it has to come down to what people really can use it for going forward. So if you start putting KYC and AML requirements and regulating the currencies, I think the usage will, will drop down. So we, we don't really see it as a, a mainstream. Uh, right now, yes, there was a big fall because people viewed it as not ESG-friendly because mining the cryptocurrencies was using so much electricity. I think that's kind of a, you know that's the question for today. Uh, that will dissipate. That took the price down a little bit, um, but it's very hard to say. We could be wrong, and this could become the mainstream of the future, uh, but at least for the current period, we, we don't see that happening at the moment.
1: Maybe just to bring in James, do you agree or disagree?
2: I agree completely on the central bank digital currency side of things. This is a topic is one of the things I spend probably most of, of of all the things I can talk about in this great job. I have as a global economist, central bank digital currency is probably the number one uh, discussion topic at the moment because of their growing um importance. On the cryptocurrency side of things, it's really important to get that distinction between cryptocurrencies that are meant to be a means of payment and those that aren't. So I can't see how Bitcoin could ever go mainstream as a means of payment. It just doesn't work. It's too volatile, it's too um, expensive to do transactions, and um, it can't process enough transactions. These things can be used, but going mainstream is almost impossible. Um, you could see stable coins, so cryptocurrencies that have a fixed value, they could become quite mainstream in the coming years they're pretty good um, but you take a credit risk by using a stable coin so people have been reluctant to use them but they're very very good um cross border but then you've got the other sort of component of um, cryptocurrencies the likes of ethereum these other sort of um but they're more of a technology play and, and I think that 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 side of things has got a lot more legs um, as something that could be used in the economy and these are things that could genuinely be used as as replacements for some jobs you can do a lot of automation processes of using blockchains to, to 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 run all sorts of apps you can have decentralized finance which creates a whole new set of um, industries you know there's still use cases are relatively small at the moment but that's evolving all of the time um, they get quite interesting you've got at the moment there's a huge boom in nfts i'm sure people have heard about you know pieces of art selling online for millions and millions of dollars that feels like a bubble but you can use nfts for ticketing you know, and so that's not a bubble because suddenly you get instead of buying a ticket to an event that comes as a PDF, is an NFT that's tracked and traceable on an app. And I think all of those developments are quite interesting. And I think a lot of the cryptocurrency debate gets overtaken by Bitcoin and not these other things that are happening underneath that have nothing to do with payments but are quite interesting. it's just no one really knows what that value should be Uh, and investing in them is is something that uh, is is something you really do need to spend some time looking and learning about these different intricacies before you start throwing money at them.
1: Excellent, Um, so a lot of questions coming through and I'm going to merge some of them together but a lot coming through on future of work and availability of talent. So specifically, how are we attracting talent into investment management, um, especially in this new hybrid work environment? And then equally, what does, do you think we will all return back to the office? So maybe I'll bring in both of you on that one, but maybe Robert, would you mind kicking us off?
3: Sure, I mean, in in terms of attracting talent, I think ESG has actually helped the the asset management world. I think, you know, we, I shouldn't say we're getting stale, but compared to where we see where the young people are now studying and their interests, it's going much more into environmental, social, different aspects. And the fact that we are now embracing this and bringing it into the asset management opens up new new avenues for people's careers. So I think it's a, it's quite a good thing. It's quite a challenging thing for the, for the business as well, uh, but going in the right direction. In terms of the, you know, back to the office, it's another great debate going on. You know, I could give you our experience at Heptagon, I mean, we we managed the pandemic quite well. And at first we thought most people would prefer remote working actually, because it's working, they're at home. And once we started coming back in, people really missed being in the office. So they missed kind of being the camaraderie, the teamwork, um, but especially for the younger people coming up in their careers as well, being next to the senior people, bantering ideas, learning, those type of things is quite important. So I think the flexible work environment is here to stay. If we want to attract talent and keep talent, we're going to have to have that flexibility. I think the days of everyone has to be in the office five days a week, you know, uh, all the time, are kind of gone, uh, unless you, you want to be the outlier. How much is in the office, how much out of the office, that, that's going to be particular to every company and, and every
2: person going forward. I do you think about it, James. No, I'd agree with that. It makes complete sense in terms of um, a lot of the surveys we're looking at, we're trying to think about what all of this means for urbanization trends and the economic drivers of certain parts of the economy that win and lose from this hybrid system. Um, I would just add one thing about remote work and what it means in terms of the jobs market from a sort of uh, economist sort of nerd perspective, in a sense, what it means for sort of wage growth and wage bargaining power. I think it creates a really interesting dynamic of, you know, if if you're a very, very skilled person, the amount of companies you can now work for has broadened out almost infinitely, um, where you don't need to be based next to an office. You can almost live where you want to live and work for anyone. So your ability to pick a price has risen dramatically. But if you're not so skilled, your company can also hire from a bigger pool of talent. Um, that means again your wage bargaining power is lower. So it's a really interesting trade-off. I think in terms of you know, what this is going to mean for jobs markets, is it going to mean that there's almost like a, a bigger power grab for really good people, really high, really high-skilled people, and maybe that means that some of those jobs that could have been replaced or automated get outsourced to different parts of the world. It's going to be really interesting, but it's. Like I alluded to earlier it's like the world's just woken up to this we all could have done remote working and a lot more virtual stuff five years ago easily but we just never did and uh it's the world's having to learn very very quickly um how, how to adapt to it and it, uh, that shakeout is going to be absolutely fascinating
1: I completely agree and I'm very glad I've done my CPD today um to make sure I could take advantage of that James <laughs> i um, very conscious of time. I know the questions are still coming in um, and we will endeavor to get back to you with responses. Um, but what I'm going to do is wrap up there. Sincerely thank my panelists, James Pomeroy and Robert Rosenberg, for sharing really interesting insights today. Thank you to those who helped organize this event and thank you for all Um, thank you all for attending and for your questions today we do hope you found this session helpful you will receive a feedback survey after the event so please let us know what you thought and if you have any questions at all please do reach out to any member of the Irish funds team thank you very much